So anyway, we're looking at uh, the epistle of 1 John, and we are continuing our study in 1 John and looking at verse 5. And uh, I want to just read all the first uh, five verses so we can just kind of keep this in the context of our of our minds and our hearts. He says here in 1 John 1, verse 1, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. This then is the message which we have heard of Him, and declare unto you, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. So John is writing to us about our fellowship with the Father and with His Son. And as you read through the epistle of First uh, John, you'll notice that John um, highlights, I guess, three aspects of God's character, three things that God is. And that is that God is light, that God is righteousness, and that God is love. And uh, it's interesting that if uh, you are paying attention, uh, the modern... A moral Gnostic, those are the very three things that the Gnostic has either rejected or he or she is perverting. This aspect of God is light, that God is righteousness, and that God is love. But yet, for us believers, the we of 1 John, uh, these three truths about God's person, about God's character, are the very things that gives us assurance, the very three things that gives us confidence, Confidence in our faith in God and confidence in um, our fellowship with God. And it's these very things that uh, these seducers are wanting to pervert and wanting to draw us away from. So it's upon these three truths concerning the character of God that John builds upon throughout his epistle. If you remember what I mentioned earlier when we talked about 1 John, 1 John doesn't more or less lay it out point A, point B, point C, kind of like the way we have it, kind of like the way I've been teaching it. But his approach is cyclical. Okay, so like it starts in the center and kind of works its way out like a spiral, adding on to truth, adding on to truth from the center. Okay, and it's God's character that is uh, crucial for us to understand about God if we want to know this fellowship that is promised to us with God. If you get this wrong, then your fellowship is going to be wrong. Okay, if you get this wrong, then you're going to get your, the fellowship with God is wrong. And that's where the seducers and the spirit of error, that's where their efforts is focused. They want to pervert. They want to twist. They want to, uh, you know, get your heart and minds off of the truth and onto their, onto their lies. You know, Amos 3.3 says, Can two walk together except they be agreed? Can two walk together except they be agreed? So to walk in agreement with the Father is to walk in agreement to His light, to His righteousness, and His love. Okay? That's the challenge for us. That's the challenge for us. Am I walking in agreement 
to his light? Am I walking in agreement to his righteousness? Am I walking in agreement to his love? That's the key to our fellowship with the Father and the Son. And I can't stress this enough. Uh, if, if you begin to examine yourself in the light of these three things in your fellowship with God, uh, that's going to be challenging. It's going to be very, very challenging. But it's also going to be extremely rewarding. It's also going to be extremely rewarding. Alright, so we've already looked at God as light in reference to His splendor, His brilliant glory. And we can, you know, we can glorify God by, uh, uh, you know, living a life that would glorify God. We also talked about God as light that speaks of His majesty. He's high and lifted up, so it's talking about His majesty. So what we're going to look at today is, um, and this will be on your your study guide God is light is in reference to his holiness his purity of being his holiness now 1st Timothy 6 14 through 16 says that thou keep this commandment without spot unrebukable until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which in his times he will show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man has seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Of course, Paul is writing about the resurrected and glorified Jesus Christ and his return as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But what he also says about Jesus Christ is that he is dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man has seen. So, Jesus Christ is the only man who can stand in the brilliant presence of a holy God. Okay? Um, Hebrews 12.29 says, For our God is a consuming fire. What do you think would happen if we stood in that brilliant, holy glory of God? What do you think would happen to us in our current state? We would be a pile of ashes. We would be a pile of ashes. No man, it says, no man can approach unto this glory that God is. But Jesus Christ can. Jesus Christ can. So, on your study guide, Jesus Christ is the incarnate glory of that light that no man can approach unto. Incarnate glory. He is glory in the flesh. Glory in the flesh. First, uh, John 1.14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He is the incarnate glory of God. So on your... In your study guide, Jesus Christ, who for our sakes laid aside this glory... 
is now once again in his glory, seated at the right hand of majesty on high. So he laid it aside. John 17, 5, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, which the glory with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. So Jesus Christ at one time displayed this glory. But he took on himself the form of a servant, the form of a man. And so he became glory incarnate, glory in the flesh. One day, on your blank, one day we who have been born again, and now are the sons of God, will see Jesus Christ in his glory. John seventeen twenty four. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. So one of these days, we're going to be able to see the glory of Jesus Christ. And I'm looking forward to that. I am looking forward to that. Now, I present this doctrine about God and about Jesus Christ because there are those in the church today from the pulpit preaching another Jesus, preaching another glory. Preaching another Jesus and preaching another glory. And I'm going to share with you just one of the blasphemous lies that are being taught by uh, these teachers that actually they teach a lie about Jesus Christ who is incarnate glory. They claim, they teach that Jesus Christ, God, God the Son, died spiritually on the cross and had to be spiritually reborn in hell because he became a lost sinner on the cross. He became a lost sinner on the cross. That's what they teach. They claim that the Spirit of Christ left the physical body of Jesus on the cross and Jesus became a lost sinful man at that moment okay that's what they teach that's what they teach these folks are antichrists these folks are false teachers these folks preach that Jesus had to go down to a burning hell to be tortured by the devil and until God's spirit anointed Jesus in hell, then Jesus had the power to fight off the demons and defeat them in hell and then become resurrected. That's what they teach. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 2 says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now wait a minute. Paul said Jesus Christ, but yet these guys teach that the Christ left Jesus. Well, if the Christ left Jesus, then why did Paul say here, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified? Because Christ... As they teach it, Christ never left Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. Okay? These false teachers claim that the cross, this is what they teach, was the biggest defeat ever to come about in the history of humankind. 
They teach that Satan won the battle that day when Jesus was crucified and God had to step in and save the day. That's what they teach. Turn to 1 John 3.8. Somebody read to me what John 3.8 says. He that committeth sin is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Alright, so who's the victor here? Jesus Christ. Yeah, Jesus Christ is the victor, not the devil. Not the devil. Uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Look at verse 14. 14 and 15. When somebody gets there, go ahead and read it out loud. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him, that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. There you go. Now who is the victor there? Jesus Christ is the victor there. Not Satan. Not the devil. Jesus Christ is the victor there. Galatians 3.1 says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. There are countless people who are sitting in churches who are being bewitched by these heretics. They're being bewitched by these heretics. This is such a gross perversion of the biblical doctrine of the work of atonement accomplished by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who according to 1 Peter 2.22, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. This is, I'm going to say it, this is blasphemy. This is blasphemy, folks. And people are buying into it. People are buying into it. God is light. Jesus Christ is the light of the world in whom is no darkness. Alright? John tells us in John 1, uh, 1 John 3, 5, and we just read it, and ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. First Peter 2.22 Peter informs us who did no sin neither was guile found in his mouth. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus is both God and man. He was sinless. He had no original sin like we do from Adam. He was born of the virgin. He was fully God and fully man. He was all light. And in him was no darkness at all. 1 John 4, 3, And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. 
these people who are selling these books, these people who are filling these churches, and yet these people who teach this stuff, right there, John, telling me that they are not of God. But yet, people believe them. People listen to them. This Gnostic heresy continues to infiltrate the modern truth. You've got TV networks like TBN, Trinity Broadcasting Network. You've got CTN, Christian Television Network, that uh, uh, places emphasis on Christian power or word of faith power or a twisted form of resurrection power or some other power, but they don't tell you where the real power comes from. Our victory is through the cross of Jesus Christ. And these networks are so clever because they'll allow mm, fairly solid Bible teachers on their network, but the majority of the teachers on those networks are heretics. Yeah, I'm going to call them that because that's what they are. They're not giving you the straight truth. They're not giving you the straight truth. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that is the power to save men, not this prosperity gospel, not this word of faith gospel, not this you are a God gospel. It's the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But yet these other gospels are so prevalent in the churches today. Even in some good Bible-believing churches. And I'm going to say it. There's even some among us in this church that believe this stuff. Because I've talked to them. I've talked to them. The very core of the, of the Jesus died spiritually doctrine is a direct attack on the finished work of the cross. It's a perversion. The blood of Jesus Christ is the atonement for sin and his resurrection is the proof that every sin was paid for by his one-time sacrifice is the gospel. And a holy God would not accept Jesus' sacrifice if Jesus was a sinful man on the cross. You know what that would make Jesus? No different than you and me. But he was the Lamb of God, spotless and without blemish. Romans 3... Um, Romans chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness. By the resurrection from the dead. Romans 3, 24 through 26, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. If Jesus' blood was sinful blood, then 
There is no redemption, folks. No redemption. God set that precedent way back in Genesis. The death of an innocent, the blood of an innocent had to cover the sins of a guilty. And what did Judas say when he cast the money at the, at the high priest's feet? He says, I have betrayed guilty blood, the innocent blood. Pay attention to the word the. Romans 5.11, and not only so, but we also join God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. There would have been no atonement if Jesus' blood was tainted with sin. 1 John 2.2, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus' Jesus' blood covers the sins of the whole world, but tragically, not everybody wants to believe in that. So on your study guide, Jesus was born sinless, perfect and spotless. He was crucified sinless. 1 Peter 1.19 He was buried sinless. Psalm 16.10 and rose again and ascended sinless. Hebrews 10.9-14 Hebrews 10.19-22 Born sinless, crucified sinless, buried sinless, rose again and ascended sinless. Okay? Did you get all that? Okay. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It's not our righteousness that gets us into heaven, folks. It's his righteousness imputed to us. Simply because we believe that Jesus Christ's blood is our redemption from sin. So on your study guide, only the Holy One of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is able to dwell in the light which no man can approach unto, in the very presence of the glory that is God the Father. You see, their teaching would, would, would eliminate so much scripture. So on your study guide, for as the Father is holy, so also the Son, as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Again on your study guide, God is light and in Him is no darkness at all, teaches us of the moral perfection of God. Moral perfection. Deuteronomy 32.4 says, He is the rock, His work is perfect, for all His ways are judgment, a God, a truth of truth, and without iniquity, just and right is He. Moral perfection. On your study guide, what is true of God in the Old Testament, is your blank, is true of God in the New. Right? He's the same today. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. God within, within 
with whom is no variableness. He's always light. He's always light. 1 John 3, 5, and, and ye know that He was manifested to take away our sins, and in Him is no sin. So, on your study guide, Jesus Christ, being the express image of God, is free of any moral imperfection. Hebrews 1, 3, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, Upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. You know, Job 14.4 says, Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Not one. Alright? So if Jesus Christ were unclean, what does that make us? Unclean. But he was clean. That's why now we are clean. So on your study guide, as is the Father, so also with the Son, and that both are free from any moral defect. To blame God of sin is to blaspheme the character of God. It's to deny his holiness. Can you see why darkness cannot fellowship with God who is light? Can you now begin to see why it is so important for us to abide in His light? Because if we don't abide in His light, folks, guess what? We're not going to stay clean. If we don't abide in His light, we're not going to enjoy the fellowship of His presence. James 1.13 says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts he any man. Now I quote that verse for a reason. Because there's another teaching out there. He says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. Do you realize that's exactly what Adam did? (laughs) When God confronted him in the garden? When he uh, ate that fruit along with his wife, Eve, I don't, and I have no idea what that fruit was. Genesis 3.12, and the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. What did he just do? <laughs> yeah, well, he blamed the woman and he also blamed God. So on your blank... On your worksheet, man has been passing the buck for his sin on God ever since. There are those, due to their theological reasoning, their religious philosophy, their systematic theology, they teach this as a part of their doctrine. Let me quote you some things here. There are those who believe that Adam and Eve did not have the power or ability to obey the law that God had given them. Don't eat that tree. They, they teach that Adam and Eve did not have the ability or the power or the will to obey God. They teach that sin is not the result of man misusing his free will, 
But they teach that sin is the result of God's secret, eternal, irresistible, sovereign will. I always have a red flag whenever I read of somebody talking about the sovereign will of God or the sovereign grace of God. They teach that God did not want Adam and Eve to obey him. But actually wanted Adam and Eve to disobey him. You're going to say, that's pretty wild. Well, let me tell you what John Calvin said. He said, the first man fell because the Lord deemed it meet that he should. So according to God's sovereign will, he decreed that Adam and Eve would sin. Another uh, Reformed theologian by the name of Johannes Piscator said, God made Adam and Eve to this very purpose, that they might be tempted and led into sin. And by the force of this decree, it could not be otherwise, but that they must sin. So it was God's will. God's sovereign will that Adam and Eve sin. That's what they're teaching. Uh, Dr. Uh, Jonathan Edwards said, He might have hindered the fall, but he would not. The reason was because he had decreed their fall. As we may gather from God's creating the tree of good and evil before their creation. So, what they're saying is that God set them up to fail. To intentionally fail. That's what he's saying. So the logical conclusion was stated by Martin Luther. Martin Luther said this, and it was... I mean, this is your logical conclusion. He says, God was actually the cause of sin. So that all sin is caused by God and all sin is unavoidable. He said, God effects and moves and impels all things in a necessary, infallible course. He said, this is the highest degree of faith. To believe that he is merciful, the very one who saves so few and damns so many. To believe that he is just, the one who according to his own will makes us necessarily damnable. He says that takes a lot of faith, and he's absolutely right. That takes a lot of faith, because that is contrary to what the Bible says about God. That takes a lot of faith to believe in this system. Now, where did Martin Luther get the idea that man's sinfulness was according to God's will and not according to his will? What, you know, where does he find that it, that God had to make us necessarily damnable? That's a good question. Because it's not anywhere in the scriptures. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning a promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, word, not willing that any should perish, including Adam and Eve but that all should come to repentance. That's not God's will. 
Ezekiel tells me that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That's not God's will. God does not make men damnable because God does not make men sinful. Who makes men sinful? We do. We do. We make ourselves damnable. Because we're sinful. Sin is the result of man's free will, folks. Not the effect of God's predetermination for man to sin so that, so that he could make man necessarily damnable. James 1.14-15 says, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. The word lust means to desire for something that is unlawful or desire something that is forbidden. On your, on your study guide, by her own admission, by her own admission, Eve was beguiled by the servant and then by her own volition took the fruit. Turn to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6. By her own admission. Genesis 3, 6. Raise your hand when you're there. Okay. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired, to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat. Alright? Just like James 1, 14-15 says. By her own volition. Yeah, the serpent did beguile her. But she's the one who chose to listen to what he said rather than what God said. And at that moment, she stepped into darkness. She stepped into darkness. And even though she, um, when God asked her in Genesis 3.13, and the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. What did she just do? She did the very same thing that her husband did. She tried to pass the blame on to the serpent. Didn't she? Yeah, I did it, but it's serpent's fault. Yeah, I ate it, but it's her fault. The one that you gave me, God? We've been doing that ever since. We've been doing it ever since. So on your study guide, God had no other recourse than to banish both our parents from the garden. And now the intimacy, intimacy is lost. That fellowship, that communion. And all that remained is the enmity. Enmity. E-N-M-I-T-Y. The intimacy is lost and now all that's left is the enmity between God and man. And here's the amazing thing. 
this being of absolute purity, this being of absolute holiness, this being in whom is no darkness at all, came and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ. John 1, uh, 1.14 says, And the Word was made flesh and, the, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So on your study guide, the phrase dwelt among us means to have one's tabernacle. Tabernacle. Abide with us. Uh, to pitch one's tent in the midst of the congregation of men. He dwelt among us. If you were to look at Jesus in those days, you wouldn't be able to tell him apart from anybody else. Isaiah tells us that there was nothing about him. No, there was nothing comely about him. You know, you see in these movies where they present Jesus, you know, and he's this handsome, you know, man with this long flowing hair. No, he... He didn't look any different than anybody else that was running around in the day. He didn't look any different. You remember the story of, the, of Lot? You remember what it said about Lot when he separated from his uncle Abraham? Genesis thirteen twelve. Abraham dwelled in the land of Canaan. And Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent toward Sodom. Lot pitching his tent toward Sodom, in effect, he was what? He was identifying himself with the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot became like one of them, living with them in their city and sitting in their gates. And in many ways, adopting or compromising... Because Peter tells us that his righteous soul was vexed. Jesus, in a sense, did the very same thing. He pitched his tent toward us. But unlike Lot, right? Unlike Lot. You see, Lot pitched his tent... In order to become like them, Jesus came to save us from what we were, or what we are. You know, this world didn't have any effect on Jesus. There's another tabernacle, wasn't there? You remember the tabernacle that Moses erected? Exodus 29:43. And there will I meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory Jesus Christ is the incarnate glory in fact in, in, in John's gospel I don't remember exactly where it is but Jesus refers to himself as sealed by the Father sanctified sanctified Yet the Gnostics and their revisionist doctrine teaches that God is both light and darkness, that God is both good and evil, that God is a flawed God, and yes, I have heard them say that. I've read them say that. They teach that God is a God that makes mistakes. They teach that God is a God who is prone to error. 
that he is an author and even promoter of sin and that he is not much different than man. He's just in a higher exalted position than man. Yes, I've read that. I just recently read where the Anglican Church of England... I can't remember the joker's... I'm sorry. I can't remember the man's name. I apologize for that. He's, he's the, one of the top bishops or whatever they have. This is what he said. He said, God had gotten it all wrong in regards to sex. Specifically in gender identification. This man who is the head honcho of this church says that there is not just two genders, but many genders. And God got it all wrong. Okay, what's he bowing to here? Is he bowing to the scriptures or is he bowing to public pressure? Yeah. So who is his authority? Is it the word of God or the word of men? Be careful, folks. Be careful. So on your study guide, the teaching of the Gnostic is that evil originated from God as well as good. That is a Gnostic belief system. The yin and yang, the dark and light. And so holding to a flawed God, F-L-A-W-E-D, they make morality a relative matter. My goodness, isn't that the way we've been living now for the past 30, 40 years, to, at least to my knowledge? Morality is a relative matter. Free from distinctions of wrong and right in a culture. So who's the final say? Culture. Rather than by the decree of God or the command of God. And so the Ten Commandments are relegated to suggestions, is the blank, or simply made invalid. Romans 6.15 says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbid. I read another fella. He said uh, this. He says, I have also wondered how could any lover of holiness be expected to accept Calvinism? So we're talking about a religious philosophy, folks. Okay, We're talking about a religious systematic theology. He said, Calvinism teaches that God prefers sin over holiness in every instance that sin occurs. And we kind of saw some of that. I quoted some of that. He says, God could have decreed righteousness in those situations, but he chose to decree sin instead. It means that God preferred a sinful universe over a sinless universe. That God preferred rebellion over obedience, and that he preferred the misery of his creatures over their well-being. And that's, that's true if you take Calvinism to its logical extremes. If a believer wants the world to be perfectly holy, are they more righteous and loving than God? If God wants sin to occur, should we? I mean, if, you know, why bother preaching against it? Why bother stopping somebody from falling into it? 
if we don't want sin to occur, but God wants sin to occur, then we would be ungodly for not wanting sin to occur. Imagine that. If Calvinism is true, a person is ungodly if they don't want sin to exist. What this man is doing is, yeah, he's using, what is the term, hyperbole? But he's taking this philosophy to its extreme, is what he's doing. Romans 3, 7 and 8 says, For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. Galatians 2.17 says, But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners. Is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. you got to be careful with these religious systems of thought. They sound good. But where do we go for the truth? Does it stack up to the truth? So on your study guide, God is not the author of sin, nor does he decree men to sin. Why would he say, repent, repent? So that they are damned necessarily, as Martin Luther reasoned. John 1.5 says, The light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. That's what's going on, folks. We've got darkness that can't comprehend the light. (laughs) And we'll look at this darkness in some detail. The natural man cannot comprehend the purity that God is. Okay? A natural man may fear God's power. He may wonder at God's works. But as far as God's holiness, as far as God's moral purity, as far as God being completely absent of any kind of of, of, of sin or darkness that's incomprehensible to the natural man and quite frankly it's incomprehensible to us who are redeemed as well can you in your mind think of an absolute holy sin free morally perfect being who can you point to in this room to say well yeah so and so is a good example of that I sure can't. There's only one person I can point to. And that's Jesus Christ. That's the only person I can point to. I mean, listen to what Isaiah said in Isaiah 6.1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet. And with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Guess what, folks? <laughs> That's us. And we would do the same thing that he that Isaiah did. Woe is me, I am undone. A. W. Tozer wrote, Holy is, is the way God is. 
To be holy, God does not conform to a standard. And that's exactly what men tried to do with God. They tried to make Him conform to a standard. He is the standard. God is the standard. He is absolutely holy with an infinite, incomprehensible fullness of purity that is incapable of being other than it is. Because He is holy, all of His attributes are holy. That is, whatever we think of as belonging to God must be thought of as holy. Even when it appears that, or when we can't understand what God is doing or why He allowed something, it's because a holy God is involved. On our side, we may not understand that. But everything that God does, everything that God is, is holy. Is holy. Hebrews 12.14 says, Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Praise God that we have Jesus Christ's righteousness imputed to us. Now, can anybody in here claim to have absolute holiness? Anybody? You know, there are some who try to claim absolute holiness. But we're like Isaiah. We're men men and women of unclean lips, and we dwell among others with unclean lips. We've been called to a higher walk than the immoral and revisionist Gnostic way of life. First Thessalonians 5.5 says, Ye are all the children of light and the children of day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. That's the problem with the church today. We've fallen asleep and we've got drunken on bad doctrine. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. So on your blank there, that God is light is our hope. And it is this hope that compels us to purify ourselves even as He is pure. 1 John 3, 1 through 3, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Verse 3, And every man that hath his this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. That is key in our fellowship with God. So on your blank, if God commanded Adam and Eve not to sin and that they were not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when he secretly wanted them to sin, as the Calvinists may claim, then God was misrepresenting his own character and intentionally misleading or deceiving them. Is that God? No, that's not God. Truthfulness is the foundation of trustworthiness. I mean, what kind of confidence can we have in the character of a person who doesn't mean what they say? But yet that's the type of God that the Calvinists want you to have the highest, most faith in. What was the second one? Intentionally. 
Second Corinthians 11.3 But I fear that at least by any means as a serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety so your mind should be corrupted through the simplicity that is in Christ. So on your study guide as I said in the beginning the character of God is the foundation to all truth. And if the Gnostic can get you to believe contrary to God's character as revealed in his word, then they can and will seduce you away from the light. So here's the second principle of fellowship with God. Unless we concede to the holiness of God and that he cannot fellowship with darkness... We are not likely to be overly disturbed about the wicked conditions that surround us, nor of our own carnal state of mind and practice, nor the many compromises compromises that we may have made to maintain our comfortable lives within this wickedness. Titus 1.15-16 says, Under the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. So on your blank, many have learned to live with unholiness in our society, in their churches, and in their homes. And many have even adopted its ways into their lives. That's why John says in 1 John 2.15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. But praise God that Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world, is our propitiation, he is our advocate, he is our mediator, he is our intercessor. Praise God that God has anointed us with His Holy Spirit. Praise God that He has given us His Holy Bible. Alright? Praise God for all of that. We as children of light must settle in our hearts and in our minds that we ourselves cannot fellowship with darkness. Because in fellowshipping with darkness, it hinders us from fellowshipping with the Father, with God who is light. That's something each and every one of us individually must make that decision. Amen? Amen. Alright, I'm going to stop right there. Mitchell, can I ask you to close us out in prayer, please?